So the title of the message today is Knowledge Puffs Up, Love Builds Up. We've all heard the word orthodoxy, I would imagine. And the word orthodoxy, it refers to belief. So when you say someone is orthodox, it means that they believe the right things. There's a similar word that we don't use that often. This word is orthopraxy. And orthopraxy means or refers to right practice. So orthodoxy, right belief or teaching, orthopraxy, right practice or behavior. The Corinthians problems were more in the realm of practice than belief. Uh, here in this letter, Paul is not so much clarifying what they as Christians believed, but how they as God's holy people were behaving. And as we have seen, they have been behaving badly. Uh, the Corinthians believed the right things for the most part. Now, there were a few areas where they had some things wrong, and Paul will address those as we go along. But, but the issue there with them was really that their lives were not aligning with their beliefs. This letter is written as a corrective. So this letter is very different in ways from many, many of Paul's epistles. Paul's epistles generally have a, um, a big emphasis on, on orthodoxy or a big emphasis on doctrine. And although that, that shows up here, it's a, it's a bit more subtle, but the, the real issues here are, again, very practical, and the letter is corrective in reference to the many areas where their lives were contradicting their professed faith. And as we've been going through this epistle, we've, we've seen that. We've seen that already, right? We have seen how... Uh, Paul begins after his greeting. He immediately jumps into uh, the issues of uh, quarreling and dividing with one another, issues that were rooted in their pride. He then addresses the, the issue of sexual immorality among them. He speaks of a man having sex with his stepmother. Uh, he talks about the legal disputes that were going on. He addresses that. And then confusion on matters of sexuality, marriage, and singleness. And so as we come now to the eighth chapter, we come now to another issue. And that is that of food sacrifice to idols. Now about food sacrifice to idols, Paul says here. So... This topic begins here in chapter 8, verse 1, but it goes all the way through chapter 11, verse 1. Now, as Paul makes his way through, he is going to address basically two issues. Number one, he's going to address the overarching issue of Christians navigating life in an idolatrous culture. 
That's, that's kind of the big picture from 8.1 to 11.1. Secondly, the immediate issue, that's the one that he's addressing here, uh, that of Christians viewing and relating to one another when it comes to disputed matters and personal freedom in Christ. So that's what he's concentrating on in this eighth chapter. As we go to chapter nine, Paul will then show how the principle that he just lays out in chapter eight is working itself out in his own life and ministry. And then in chapter 10, he addresses the overarching question of navigating life in an idolatrous culture. So all of that to say, we're going to be looking at the subject for the next few weeks, uh, this underlying subject of idolatry. But now today we're looking specifically, though, at how Christians are to view and relate to one another when it comes to disputed matters and questions of personal freedom in Christ. But before we get there, I, I just want us to see the, that this passage, although it might seem a little bit odd to us or maybe foreign, you know, how does this really relate? It it relates more than you might think. Uh, but let me say this. We Western Christians, now remember, there are Christians all over the world, right? So we Western Christians, and sometimes even more specifically American Christians, we tend to look at this passage and struggle to find some application to ourselves because, after all, when was the last time you came across food offered to idols? Anybody come across that issue this week? Anybody struggling as you went uh, maybe to a restaurant with what was set before you because, well, this was actually offered and sacrificed to a God? We, this is something that for us in our cultural context, it doesn't seem to have any direct application. And because of that, then what we often try to do, and, and sometimes this is valid, is we try to, um, well, and even we'll do this today, we'll take the principle, but sometimes we try to find maybe parallel type things uh, around us that, that we might apply it to. Um, and sometimes those are called gray areas. Well, you know, there's these certain gray areas, that's what Paul's talking about here. Um, but actually, the gray areas, more often than not, uh, turn out to be more cultural issues than biblical ones. And so the direct application, I don't think, can really be found by trying to find parallel gray areas. But here's what we need to understand even though for us, as I said, Western Christians, even though we might think, well, how does this relate to me? It relates directly to the 1.2 billion Hindus in the world today and the 500 million Buddhists in the world today. You see, this is, we have to realize that, that this word is written to all God's people universally. And so this is a present reality and a challenge for those living in those cultures. For those who come to faith in those contexts, these are the everyday issues that they face. 
So when I was pastoring in London years ago, um, we had a very uh, diverse congregation, people from many different nations around the world. And I remember teaching this passage. And I remember laboring and trying to find you know, some way to connect it with our cultural situation uh, there in London. And I'll never forget, after the teaching, a young man came up to me from a Hindu background and said, what you read about today is what I have dealt with every day of my life since I became a Christian in a Hindu context. And I was quite honestly shocked. Wow. You forget, you get so in your own world, you forget that people live differently. And even though we don't have this kind of idolatry, although we have plenty of other types of idolatry that we'll talk about in the weeks ahead, um, this kind of idolatry is still a reality in the Hindu world. It's still a reality in the Buddhist world. In devout Hindu families and Buddhist families, people daily offer sacrifices to gods, and then they take those same sacrifices, and from part of that, they nourish themselves. So the point that I want to make right here is simply this. The Bible is never outdated or irrelevant. The Bible is just as relevant today. And of course, again, we have to just look beyond our own immediate context and we realize, wow, this, this situation that Paul describes <coughs> is, is actually more than likely going on somewhere in the world today with a Christian from one of these different backgrounds. Now, Let's look at how Paul deals with the issue here. So in the Greco-Roman world, almost all the meat sold in restaurants and in the marketplace had been offered to idols. It was almost universal. So here's the question. How were Christians to deal with this? Were they to stop eating meat altogether? Were they to recognize that idols were nothing and not worry about it? Uh, what if some Christians thought one thing and some another? Who was right? What should be done? These are the very issues at hand, and this is what Paul addresses here. So he starts with knowledge. He says, we know that all possess knowledge. We know that all possess knowledge. Now, there's two groups of people that Paul's going to talk about here. He's talking more specifically to the group that would be categorized as strong. So they're stronger in the faith. They don't have a bunch of hang-ups. They've got a, a, a really good theological grip on things. Um, the problem is, though, they're prideful about it. So he's going to be talking to them, and then he's going to also be referencing those who are weaker, and depending on your translation, if you happen to have uh, the NIV and the 2011 version, you will notice that we know that we all possess knowledge. We all possess knowledge is italicized. 
which means that the translators saw this not as something Paul was saying himself, but he's quoting them. So he's saying to them, in other words, oh yes, we know that all have knowledge. This, this, is, this is their statement. In other words, their statement is, look, we all know that this isn't a problem. We all know that nobody should be hung up on these things. Now, the key word here is all. And what Paul is wanting them to see is that the all is their little group. And as far as they're concerned, is nobody outside their little group really matters. So it's like, hey, we all know this. In other words, if you don't know this, then you're kind of stupid. And so we don't have to give place to that kind of stupidity because everybody knows we've got knowledge. But then Paul says this, knowledge puffs up. Knowledge puffs up. That, knowledge has that tendency. Whatever the field, when, when people gain a certain amount of knowledge about something, there, there oftentimes tends to be a pride that comes as a result of that. And we see this a lot of times in the theological world. I have heard people say things like, well, you don't really know the original languages, so you don't really know what's going on here. And they say it sometimes in a very condescending tone. It's the, look, uh, we know. And that knowledge has puffed them up. It's made them proud. The NLT, New Living Translation, translates knowledge puffs up. Knowledge makes us feel important. And another translation reads, knowledge alone makes people self-righteously arrogant. And this is a fact of life. This happens. And that's what was happening here. So they knew, but this had, this had led to pride. And Paul says, those who think they know something don't yet know as they ought to know. So in other words, the prideful person, the person who's lifted up in pride over their knowledge doesn't really know what they need to know. <laughs> Whatever knowledge we attain, we need to hold it humbly recognizing that there's still a lot that we don't know. And of course, in comparison to God, we don't really know much of anything. So what we need to know in the end is that we don't know as much as we think we know. And that is what Paul is hinting at here with them. Now, knowledge is good, but it's not everything. We, we want to have knowledge. We need to have knowledge. The, the Bible exhorts us to know the Lord. And we know the Lord through seeking him, through studying his word and so forth. So knowledge is good, but it's not everything. 
And not everyone has the same experience. Not everyone is going to respond to the facts in the same way. And we have to be aware of that. And so as Paul goes on here, look in verse four. And this is interesting because what Paul is gonna do here in verse four is in one sense, he's gonna say to the strong, I get it. I, I pretty much agree with you. Listen to how he does it. He says, so then, about eating food sacrificed to idols. We know that an idol is nothing. Paul's saying, I know that too. An idol is nothing in all the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord Jesus Christ through whom all things came and through whom we live. So Paul is basically saying that their understanding of things is actually right. They get it. An idol is really nothing. It's, you know, the Zeus, Aphrodite, these, these different gods and goddesses that the people were offering to. Paul says, no, you're, you're right. They're, they're, they're nothing. There is only one God. I agree with you on that, but, verse 7, not everyone possesses this knowledge. See, Paul is at heart a pastor. Now, Paul is a brilliant theologian, but he's not only a theologian. You know, I read a lot of theology, and sometimes I think, man, these theologians need to connect with people. Like, they need to come down to earth. And sometimes I read theological books or articles or whatever the case might be, and I find that these people, technically they are right about a lot of things, but they rarely think about the implications of this for the average person in a congregation. This is why I'm absolutely convinced that God has given to the church pastors. Pastors help, I think, balance theologians. I mean, we help each other. We need theologians. We need people to do that deep work. We need people to think thoroughly on things. We need to uh, glean from that and appreciate that. But at the same time, where the theologian is often thinking more about the truths and the information, uh, the pastor thinks about the people. And this is what we see here. So this group of people that Paul's addressing, they have the right theological perspective, but they don't care for people. So for them, it's like, I don't care what happens with them, they're wrong. They're ignorant of these truths, and I'm not going to let their ignorance bother me. I'm going to do what I want to do. But Paul says that is the problem. And so he tells them not everyone possesses this same knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a God, and since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. 
but food does not bring us near to God. So see what Paul is saying is like, that's fine that you, you understand this, that you've got a good grip on this theologically. I understand it as well, but what you're forgetting is not everybody gets it. Not everybody is gonna have that same kind of understanding. Not everybody is gonna be able, because of their background and their experience, they're not necessarily gonna be able to just blow this idolatry off like you can and just say, oh, this is nothing. Because for them, it's still something that was so deeply rooted in their lives. It still, to them, seems like this is not the right thing to do. So... Paul goes on and he says that you can end up wounding the weak conscience of such a person. Therefore, he says, be careful. Be careful, however, that the exercise, listen to this, the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. So you see the argument? Hey, we know the facts. There's only one God. And based upon that truth, you know, we have the right to, to participate in this because it's nothing really anyway. And nobody should judge us. Nobody should try to limit us. We're free. Paul is saying that that kind of freedom, the kind of freedom that might stumble a weaker person is the freedom that you should set aside rather than exercise. And then he goes on and he describes a, a possible scenario. He says, for if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge, Paul's kind of poking at him here, you know, with all your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So in the ancient world, the temples, the idol temples had restaurants connected to them. It's convenient. You could go and offer a sacrifice and then you could have a meal. And this is what the people did. They would go to the temple. They would offer a sacrifice. They would invite friends. Hey, let's meet at the temple. I'm going to make the sacrifice. And then we'll all have a nice big feast. And they would feast on the things that had been offered. The portion, portion of the meat was offered to the God. And then the rest of it, they would have it prepared for them. And they would participate in them. This, this is just what they did all the time. Now, Paul envisions a scenario where there's a weak Christian who looks at that and just says, man, this idolatry, they, they probably came out of a deep idolatrous experience in their lives. And as far as they know, this is, I don't want to have anything to do with that anymore. But then as they go by the temple, they see one of these strong, knowledgeable Christians just having the time of their life. There they are having this feast, there they are in the idol's temple. And then they think, well, gosh, what's the matter with me? Maybe, maybe, why do I have these hangups? Maybe I can do this too. And then they indulge, and then they end up utterly condemned over it. 
and the devil jumps into the mix and seeks to push them toward despair. So Paul says, this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. So man, he's really hitting them with this, this knowledge thing. And the pride in their knowledge that would cause them to have little to no concern for the spiritual welfare of their weaker brother or sister. But then he says this, when you sin against them in this way, so he says what they're doing is a sin. <clears throat> when you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Wow. So in other words, Paul's saying this is no light matter. Yes, it's wonderful that you have knowledge. And yes, it's wonderful to have Christian liberty and freedom. But this kind of liberty this liberty that stumbles somebody else is actually a sin. And so therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, this is Paul speaking, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. So Paul's commitment is to not doing anything that's gonna cause the weaker person to fall. Now, over in Romans chapter 14, if you want to turn there just a few pages back in your Bible, Paul is dealing with the identical situation in speaking to the church in Rome, but he, he gives a little bit more detail, so I want us to see what he has to say here. So we'll look at verses one through seven and then verses 14 through 23, the end of the chapter. But listen to what Paul says. He says, except one who, whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. And here they are. One, for, one person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat the uh, treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Now, just know this. This is not an issue of um, vegetarianism versus uh, eating meat. Th this is all in the context of idolatry. And I say that because some people have misunderstood um, the reference to vegetables here. The point is, in the ancient world, in the pagan world, it was almost impossible to get meat that wasn't sacrificed to idols, unless you got it from a Jewish butcher. And that wasn't the case with vegetables. Vegetables were much more readily available. You could grow them, for that matter. And so um, it was those who did not, in their conscience, have the ability to eat the meat for fear of the idol, they would then just have a vegetable diet. So Paul says, though, he says not to judge the one, for God has accepted them. And then he asks this question in verse four, who are you to judge someone else's servant to their own master, servant stand or fall, and they will, be, or they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. 
One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. In other words, uh, what we do affects other people, and we need to think about that. Now look at verse 14. He says, I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in and of itself. So again, Paul is saying here, if he was speaking to the Corinthians, he would basically be agreeing with them that an idol is nothing. He says, that's my position. I hold to that. I agree with that. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person, it is unclean. So Paul here is talking about the individual conscience. And although theologically he knows the truth about this, he recognizes that not everybody's going to see it this way. Paul understands that. And he acts accordingly. So... If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval." Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Happy is the one who does not condemn himself and what he approves, but whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat because their eating is not from faith and everything that does not come from faith is sin. So here Paul is taking up really the issue of the individual conscience. And we all have to understand this. The individual conscience really matters for the Christian. Quoting N.T. Wright from his commentary, he said this about this issue. He said, this is one of the key ways, the, this individual conscience is one of the key ways in which each individual maintains responsibility before God for his or her own actions. Keeping a clear conscience before God is part of basic Christian living. If one Christian behaves in a way which shocks or distresses another or leads them to do something their own conscience is telling them is wrong, they are taking away their responsibility and forcing them to disobey what they are convinced is God's will for them. At that point, the stronger Christian is actually making the weaker one sin. And at that point, we should all realize that something has gone badly wrong. So what Paul is um, talking about, and what N.T. Wright is getting at here is that the individual conscience is either um, uninformed 
and therefore immature, and that will change over time, or these individual con convictions have been put there by God for that person specifically. See, here's the thing. We're all different. We all have different areas of vulnerability. What I'm vulnerable to in regard to sin, you might not be at all. And vice versa, what, what you're vulnerable to, I might, might not be vulnerable at all. But simply because I have no vulnerability in that area, I cannot assume that you shouldn't have it either because it could be there as a protective measure. So we who are strong should never put pressure on the weaker brother or sister to go against their conviction, even if we think it's an immature perspective that is holding them back from some area of freedom. You know, when, when I you know, meet people who have strong convictions about certain things, I don't try to talk them out of that conviction. Now, we can seek to instruct and educate them because that conviction might be based on a misunderstanding or superstition or something like that. So, so we can seek to instruct and educate them, but we're not to try to persuade them. We need to leave that up to God. So I think of times where, you know, maybe somebody calls on the radio and they express uh, a conviction about something that I have a different conviction about. And so in the end, I just encourage them, well, you hold to your conviction. You know, this is my conviction. It's not the same as yours. Uh, but if that's your conviction, you hold to it. And I'm going to trust that in the process of time, God will grow them out of that if that needs to be the case. So that personal conviction, we have to understand, can be God's way of protecting them from some area of vulnerability to sin. So again, some people have vulnerabilities that we don't all necessarily share. But God knows their vulnerabilities. And so he gives them a check in regard to certain things to keep them from going in the direction that's going to lead them into trouble. Now, as I said, God himself will grow and mature people out of immature views and convictions if and when they are no longer necessary to protect or to train them. So in some of these things, we just have to give people time. And going back to our text in <coughs> Corinthians, this is what Paul is saying to the strong. Hey, you need, to, you need to back off. And you need to recognize that these weaknesses are not things that you are to impose your liberty on them and force them out of it. You need to back off, and in love, you need to limit your freedoms, perhaps, for their benefit and trust that in the process of time, God's going to mature them. Now, I know from experience that convictions change over time. And let me just make this crystal clear. We're not talking about sinful issues here. I mean, there's no liberty to sin as a Christian. We're talking about disputed matters like the one that's being addressed here. But I can think even in my own life of how 
when I was a younger Christian, I had certain convictions. I had certain things that I um, just felt like, you know, I can't, no, I can't touch that. It's not, in and of itself, it's not an evil thing, but it's just a thing that's gonna maybe remind me of my past or stir up things that shouldn't be stirred up or whatever. Bring me under uh, undue temptation. And I can say that as time passed and as I grew and matured, that those lessened and to a certain point just no longer became issues. But that's a work that God does and we must trust him for that. So here's a question. Does all this mean that my liberty, my freedom is limited by a a brother or sister's weak conscience. In other words, am I kind of like held captive by the weak conscience of the person near me, the brother or sister near me? Yes, you are. Yes, I am. But only when that is truly the issue. And this is what I mean by that. There are those who will seek to limit others' liberty simply out of legalism, and we are not subject to the same rule there. So, you know, there are some people who are just bent toward legalism. It's not a matter of stumbling or anything like that. It's just simply that they, they like rules and they want everybody to keep the rules that they like. And we are not to be held hostage by that. So... We're talking about a very specific case here. We're talking about a person who genuinely is vulnerable. So again, N.T. Wright has a good word here. He says, this teaching is no excuse for people with small minds and badly educated consciences to prevent the rest of the church doing things that are harmless in themselves. Sometimes people from a very narrow background, full of rules and restrictions, which have nothing to do with the gospel itself and everything to do with a particular social subculture, try to insist that all other good Christians should join them in their tight little world. But in a case like that, the rule-bound Christians are in no danger of having their conscience damaged. They are not being led astray. They are quite sure of their own correctness. Paul is not dealing with that here. He's dealing with something entirely different. So again, it's, it's a matter of a, a genuine case of, of a person being truly vulnerable and my freedom potentially stumbling them. Paul is just simply saying, we need to let go of that freedom. We need to set that aside. Like he said, I'm, I'm not going to, for me, if, if there's the potential to stumble, I won't eat meat or drink wine ever again. So what this boils down to is this, love trumps knowledge. Love is the supreme thing. Remember what Jesus said about everybody recognizing those who are his disciples. He didn't say, by your knowledge, the world will know that you are my disciples. As important as knowledge is, it's not the ultimate. What did he say? He said, by your love for one another, you will know. 
or people, others will know. So love, as we said in the beginning, love builds up. That's the motivation of love. I want to build people up. I don't want to see somebody torn down. I don't want to stumble somebody. I want to help somebody grow in Christ. The NLT, again, New Living Translation, put it beautifully. While knowledge makes us feel important, it is love that strengthens the church. It is love that strengthens the church. Again, I think knowledge is important. That's why we do what we do. But my prayer is that we would be known by our love. I think anybody coming from the outside, walking in, I think they're going to want to walk into an atmosphere of love versus an atmosphere of knowledge that has resulted in arrogance. I don't know of anything more miserable than hanging out with a bunch of know-it-alls. There's nothing attractive about that. We want, we want the atmosphere of love. That's what God loves. Not, we're not diminishing knowledge. We're just putting it in its right place. Knowledge is good, but it must be held in humility. But love is the key. Our goal is this. Strengthen our brothers and sisters, helping them by our love and grace to mature in the faith. And if that means that this liberty needs to be set aside or I need to keep this to myself and not publicly broadcast it, then that's what needs to be done because I need to be more concerned about the welfare of the weak than about the expression of my own freedom. That's what Paul is saying here. And may God help us to do that. So Lord, we pray that you would now apply these truths to us. And I would imagine that for as many people as are sitting in this room, there could be different applications of this. And so during this time where we worship you, Lord, where we just want to ask that the Spirit would bring home to our hearts personally the truths that relate to us today, would you do that? Help us to make the changes, the adjustments where we need to make them. Lord, for those who are strong, help us to hold that knowledge and humility. For those that are weak, strengthen them, grow them, mature them. And Lord, we thank you that you're at work in our lives, that you're at work in our church. And we pray, Lord, that the atmosphere here would be one of your presence, which then would be love, for God is love. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.